0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bonafide Ministry. I think many people are aware that there is presently a case before the Supreme Court. uh, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and Roe v. Wade. And this is looking actually to possibly overturn Roe v. Wade outright, or to cripple the landmark ruling by eliminating the fetal viability standard at its core. So it remains to be seen what's going to come of this particular case. Now, regardless of that, many people are thinking about abortion, pro-life, pro-choice, and such matters. For Christians, however, Orthodox Christianity The conclusion is foregone that life is precious and one of the distinctions I want to make is this a lot of people when they say pro-life what they mean really is pro-birth that is we want to get them born but then afterwards they're sort of on their own so when you think about really being true life truly pro-life you have to think about the person being born but not only that but also them being cared for in every stage of life. My personal views on being pro-life entails that I'm actually anti-war, that I'm anti-death penalty, that I am pro-health care, and such things, which usually runs counter to how a lot of conservative thinking goes. Um, So, I think it's important to make that distinction. Pro life versus pro birth. So, regarding most pro life movements, is the emphasis on the lives of the unborn. The struggle to obliterate the barbaric custom of aborting the unborn is as much a reality now as it was in the first century to the earliest Christians. Nevertheless, the battle wages on, and Christians continue to advocate that unborn lives be regarded as worthy of the same rights and privileges as those already born. Now, political rhetoric attempts to sway the conversation to the side of choice. Attempting to be sympathetic to those who make the decision to abort a life, many hold that the decision is itself agonizing and that women must be control, must be in control of their bodies and decisions about their, quote, health. Now, while the rhetoric often frames the conversation, and vilifies those who are pro-life, it has to be stated that pro-life for the unborn should also mean pro-life for the living. So, these things in mind, I remember it was back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when liberals used to speak about pro-choice as an agonizing, rare sort of phenomenon. Now the rhetoric is that it's almost a virtue to even have an abortion. So if you look at the rhetoric of abortion from the seventies, eighties and nineties versus today, in those decades, it was a painstaking rare choice that a woman might have to make today. However, it's all about celebrating it. Well, for those of us that are Christians, when God created humanity, he created them in his own image. And so, because every person is made in God's image, anyone who took life was to lose their own for the reason that they destroyed the image of God. Genesis 9 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Now, in the ancient East, appearing in God's image implied a representation of identity relating to the office or role and the value connected to the image so the image of god did the god's work on the earth and the biblical view is similar as people are in the image of god embodying his qualities and doing his work so because each human bears god's image this is the source of human worth and personhood i really love how david puts it in psalm 139 verses 13 through 16 He says for you form my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. This particular psalm gives us the idea of the great care with which God acts during the gestation period of the unborn. Now, science may give us a technical explanation, but the psalmist enlightens us with a poetical explanation of God's working. We read in another psalm, Psalm 127, verse 3, that the fruit of the womb is a reward. And it was the fruit of Mary's womb that Elizabeth blessed in Luke chapter 1, verse 42. So a child is not a burden. But a child is a gift from God. God reveals that he knows the unborn even before they are formed in the womb. And we can read that in Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 4 and 5. Yet while in the womb, they are regarded as living beings. And the discussion about when life begins truly is unnecessary. According to the Mosaic law, if the unborn were harmed, retribution was necessary. In Exodus 21 verses 22 to 25. We also see this reflected in our own laws when a pregnant woman suffers harm along with her unborn child. The treatment of such matters is as if the harm were done to two people. But were the vessel to decide that the unborn were unwanted or a burden, they would need only to choose, and the treatment of the unborn as a person is neglected on the altar of the idol of choice. Now, when you go back to abortion in Greco-Roman society, Hippocrates in the 5th and 4th century BCE was a pioneer of medical theory as well as the Hippocratic Oath that even to this day physicians swear by when they begin their practice of medicine. And a part of the original Hippocratic Oath says, I will not give to a woman an abortifacient. Now abortion was rather common in antiquity, but Greco-Roman society wasn't entirely careless regarding abortion. In some cases, it appears as wrong as we believe it to be today. For example, in Athens, if a man died while his wife was pregnant and she aborted the pregnancy upon his death, she was charged to have committed a crime against her husband. The legal theory was that her abortion was criminal since the unborn child could have claimed the late father's estate. So it was more a matter of property rights than a moral statute. But when you fast forward closer to the time of Jesus we see that not much had changed in this regard. In the poet Ovid's work, Amores, which was published in 16 BCE, Ovid mentions abortion in the early Roman Empire and the unborn child as a, quote, burden. However, in the next elegy, he refers to the fetus as tender and the destruction of it as by a warlike method this specific elegy is against abortion because it robs society of her caesars and other heroes ovid suggested that it was that were this a common practice there would actually be no humanity so he asked why women would thrust and pierce with the instrument and give dire poisons to unborn children which explains to us how abortions were performed then The methods were sometimes as risky for the mother as they were for the unborn baby, and many women died from having attempted to terminate their pregnancy in the Greco-Roman period. Now Cicero, the Roman statesman, mentions a disdain for abortion similar to the Athenian law mentioned above. A mother had been bribed by alternative heirs to terminate her pregnancy, which she did. The mother in turn was condemned to death because she cheated the father of his posterity and the Republic of a Potential Citizen. You can read about this in Cicero's work in defense of Cluentius. I hope I said that right. Now, the philosophical school of Stoicism held that life began once a child was born. The breathing of a person outside the womb was the moment that life actually began, and this thinking allowed abortion to be more acceptable, and Seneca the Younger, who lived in the first century AD, uh, who was also a Roman statesman and philosopher, he was able to use this belief in the legal system. He wrote that unnatural progeny were destroyed, which was likely a reference to an incestuous conception. But he also wrote about drowning children that were born abnormal and weak. But uh, we can talk about infanticide another time. The Stoic idea that unborn babies were not humans came to influence Roman law, and it only further justified the practice of abortion. Now, not all Stoics consented to this being a good thing. Musonius Rufus, in the first century, saw abortion as inhumane. He saw its purpose as solely of enhancing the firstborn's inheritance more than anything, and that amounted to greed. The lawgivers functioned to discern what was lawful and good for the state as well as what was bad and detrimental to it. He recalled that the lawgivers urged the increase of the homes as something fortunate. So fortunate was the increase of the homes, quote, that they forbade women to suffer abortions and impose the penalty upon those who disobeyed, end quote. His discourse on this matter is likely a referendum against the common practice of abortions in the first century. Now, Juvenal wrote that wealthy women would not endure labor, but would dull the pain with drugs or obtain an abortion. He also wrote how the Emperor Domitian impregnated his niece and then gave her abortive drugs. Now the niece in question, Julia, died in 1891 as a result of her abortion. So here we see another example of why abortions were performed. That was due to incest. Wealthy people may not have just wanted to deal with it, so they selfishly terminated the pregnancy. However, there was another reason for terminating a pregnancy. Slave women might terminate their pregnancies to avoid bringing up children in slavery. The slave women would have had to have done this in secrecy because a slave's child was the property of her master and not her own. We get to the second century, and the Greek gynecologist, obstetrician, and pediatrician Sorinus of Ephesus wrote his work Gynecology, which explains how medical knowledge at the time treated various related matters. And in this work, he distinguished between an involuntary abortion which is what we'd call a miscarriage, and the willful termination of pregnancy. He also distinguished between a contraceptive and abortive. The former was to prevent contraception from taking place, while the latter was intended to expel the unborn from the woman's body. In discussing when an abortive was given, he noted that some would not give an abortive if a woman wanted to terminate the pregnancy due to adultery, or because she wanted to preserve her youthful beauty. An abortive would be given if it were discovered that the woman's body, according to the science then, were determined to be unable if birthing a child and thus risking the mother's well-being. But Soranus preferred contraceptives to an abortive as a preventative risk because, he wrote, it is safer to prevent conception from taking place than to destroy a fetus. Soranus went on to list various concoctions that could be used as a contraceptive or abortifacient. But if used to terminate a pregnancy, serious side effects followed that posed significant risks. Yet this didn't prevent him from explicitly naming how one might terminate a pregnancy. Now there are a lot more citations that I could supply to the ends of showing how common abortion was in the first century. And we also noted a couple of pagans who were against it but not for the same moral reasons early Christians stood opposed to the practice. Additionally, there were others who opposed abortion in antiquity, but Christians gave a clear understanding of why it was wrong that distinguished them from others. Now, one of the confessions that we must make is that there are no clearly stated prohibitions against the act of abortion in the New Testament. However, early Christians borrowed their moral understanding of various issues from Judaism. So, we first look at the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in the first century. He wrote about the Jewish prohibition against abortion on the basis that it was a matter of Jewish law. In his work against Appian, he wrote, "...the law, moreover, enjoins us to bring up all our offspring, and forbids women to cause abortion of what is begotten or to destroy it afterward." And if any woman appears to have so done, she will be a murderer of her child by destroying a living creature and diminishing humankind. If anyone, therefore, proceeds to such fornication or murder, he cannot be clean. Later on, the Ten Commandments were used by early Christians just as they were by the Jews, and that is as teachings that pertain to moral living. Now, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, was given a greater exposition in Christian thinking. Now, in the first century, a document known as Didache was written, and attention turned to the Sixth Commandment and stated, quote, you shall not murder, you shall not engage in sorcery, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide, chapter 2, verse 2. Now, this document understood the Sixth Commandment as extending to the unborn. Now, the reason I included that bit about sorcery as a part of this understanding is that the Greek term translated sorcery is from the Greek term that we get the word pharmacy. So it's possible that what the author or authors meant by sorcery may have included taking abortifacients, that is, drugs that induced abortion. Now, our modern understanding of the Sixth Commandment was clearly understood as extending to the life of the unborn. Now, also in keeping with the Mosaic Law, the paths of life and death in Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28 are recast as darkness and light in another early Christian writing called the Epistle of Barnabas. In chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, we read, But the path of darkness is crooked and full of cursing, for it is the path of eternal death and punishment. In which way are there things that destroy the soul? Here are they who are persecutors of the good, haters of truth, lovers of lies. They who know not the reward of righteous, who cleave not to what is good, nor unto just judgment, murderers of children." Now Christian writers believe that life began at conception. Clement of Alexandria inferred from Luke chapter 1 verse 41 that when John leaped in Elizabeth's womb upon Mary's greeting, that life began at conception. Athanagoras in the late second century pointed to Christianity's rejection of abortion as proof that Christians were moral when he wrote that Christians, quote, say that those women who use drugs to bring on abortion commit murder and will have to give an account to God for the abortion, end quote. Later church councils forbade abortion and actually levied punishments against any who murdered their children. The fourth century council of Elvira reflects such belief. For example, Canon 63 says, if a woman conceives an adultery and then has an abortion, she may not commune again, even as death approaches, because she has sinned twice. Canon 68 says, a catechumen who conceives an adultery and then suffocates the child may be baptized only when death approaches. Even some of the most notable early theologians supported this stance. Augustine and John Chrysostom viewed abortion as murder. And so what are we to make of all this information? Well, we're to make of it that life is precious and worthy of being protected. Moreover, even without the testament of church history, the scriptures give sufficient enough evidence for we Christians to believe this. Once one examines the passage that speak about life of the unborn, they can conclude that it is treasured. For those who desire greater proof, early Christian history is without apology and holding the belief that life begins at conception, so the unborn ought not to be aborted. Now, these two beliefs led to another moral issue. The problem that arose as a result of unwanted children led to the abandonment of children throughout the Roman Empire, and Christianity responded in kind. So, let me back off of that, and I want to address a few common objections. One of which is, what about rape? First of all, I abhor rape. I think it's one of the most horrible things that could ever happen to a woman. And were it up to me, a rapist would be tattooed on his forehead and made to live in shame the rest of his life. But it's not up to me. The Guttmacher Institute, which is not known for being conservative at all, records that less than 1% of all abortions are the result of rape and incest less than 1%. Now I agree that rape is horrible and I don't have a clear answer about that. I once had this conversation with my wife and I asked her, I said, what would you do if you were ever raped and pregnant as a result? And she paused for a moment and she said, I couldn't terminate the pregnancy because it's not the baby's fault. And I respect that, but I also respect that other women see that differently. And I don't think that there's a monolithic view on rape or incest, but considering that it makes up less than 1% of all abortions, according to the Guttmacher Institute, I think that we can't take the smallest occurrence and apply it to the whole. Now, another argument is men shouldn't have a say because men don't have a uterus. Well, I think that's a weak argument. Uh, If that's the case, white people shouldn't have a say about issues pertaining to people of color because they're not people of color. Or cancer doctors can't speak about cancer unless they've had it. You see the logic. I think that's a weak argument, and I think it's an argument meant to simply just evade the topic as a whole. Now, another issue is what about when the life of a mother is in danger? I understand that. And I definitely think that's a hard choice to have to make. As a matter of fact, I had a friend who, uh, some years ago was pregnant and there was a case of the child within her, risking her life. And she had to go to Planned Parenthood and obtain an abortion. Her life was in the balance. And I really feel for her for having to have, for having to have had to go through that experience. Um, But I know she's not a careless person. And I know that, you know, she doesn't devalue life, but her circumstances were a rare occurrence, and she had to make a tough call. Now, if abortion was completely outlawed, she would not be able to have obtained that. Now, I'm compassionate towards those circumstances, as I think everyone should be, because she was facing death, and she had to make that decision. So, should abortion be outlawed outright? I don't believe so. For cases such as you know, a mother's life in the balance. And I just happen to know one person for who that was a reality. There are also cases where the fetus is not viable. That is, it's not living in the womb. And it's necessary to evacuate it from the mother's body so that it doesn't become a harm to her. Because there are cases of dead fetuses, dead children in the womb, who break down and who can create a host of health issues for the mother. Now, if it were my wife and such an occurrence were so that her life was in the balance and there was no viability uh, to to the child's life, you know, that would probably be a decision that we would make. But that's a rarity and an exception And I think that at all costs, life should be protected. Now, there's also the argument, my body, my choice. And I do believe that every person should have the right to exercise bodily autonomy and make the decisions that are best for them. However, a mother only has one heart and one set of lungs. That other heart and that other set of lungs within her, that's not her body. It may be within her body. It may be feeding off of her body, but it's not her body. I'm all for women doing anything as it regards their personal being, and not just women, but anybody, whether I agree with it or not. However, that child in the womb is not her body, and that is a distinction that many of us make. I'll go on to conclude simply by saying that I believe there are many women who are forced into a difficult position to make this difficult choice. But I will also say that there are probably many women also who are simply irresponsible. Do I believe that the men with whom they're irresponsible are as equally culpable? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our society is driven by sex, and because of that, people are fast and loose with it. And because of that, many unborn have paid the price. And that shouldn't be. There are so many different ways that a person can protect themselves. Now, as a Christian, we have certain views about the sanctity of life and also of marriage and sex within marriage. And I could talk to that, but the reality is not everyone shares those views but there are contraceptives that people can take. There is also the morning after pill that women could take. There should be no reason or a very small percentage of any reason that a person finds themselves pregnant. I know sometimes accidents happen. I fully understand that. But I think that we should be able to admit that there is also a lot of irresponsibility that is occurring. Now, is that any of my business? Well, not particularly. However, when your irresponsibility costs the life of another, that is a problem. If I were carelessly driving and texting and hit a person and killed them, I would face charges in a court of law. Rightly so, because I was irresponsible. And people that are irresponsible at the expense of another, I think, should have to face penalties for that. Now, I'm sensitive to those who have made that difficult decision, and I don't believe that that is an unforgivable sin. I believe that there are times that sometimes people make that difficult decision, and because they had to make it and they chose differently from what God would want, I don't believe that God loves them any less. I would hope that they seek the appropriate help, that they seek the forgiveness of God. And all we can do is start from today and move forward to do better. That is the life of Christianity. We are not perfect. We make bad choices. And this is not just about people that are non-Christians, because there are many Christian women who have made these decisions as well. And if I had one sitting opposite me, I would just say, I'm sorry you had to make that decision. I'm sorry that you felt you had to make that decision, but I want you to know that God still loves you. Now, the one thing that's gonna be hard for a lot of conservatives to stomach is the fact that if you will notice that when Obamacare was signed into law, the abortion rate dropped dramatically after it. And why was that? It's because finally women had health care and could seek care for their pregnancies. And they didn't feel that they had to make that choice. Now, if you are a conservative Republican, you're going to hate to hear that, but I invite you to look it up and study it yourself. Not long after Obamacare was signed into law and during the presidency of Barack Obama, abortion rates plummeted. And one of the things that history has shown is that when a Democrat is in the highest office, abortion rates go down. So that's something worth looking at. And in the event of full disclosure, I thought I'd just point that out. So uh, the majority of what I had to say as far as the data and the information is also in a blog post at my personal website, which is sc-hunter.com, sc-hunter.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I thank you for your time, and I hope this has been informative.